I want to invite the rest of you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 if you have a Bible handy or can find one. As a church, we're working our way through 2 Corinthians on Sunday mornings, uh, learning about the gospel, learning about Christ and what he's done, learning about opponents to that very matter. It's been a good study for us, so if you're just joining us, welcome. Glad you're here. Hopefully it'll help you as well. To sort of set things up, I want to quote a former boss of mine after he would hear me preach when I was a pastoral intern in Los Angeles. And I can hear him saying it now because of his unique accent. He would say, Patrick, you need more application. And the fact of the matter is I did need more application. I'll say I need more application. But he would say this to me, uh, and he would say this to me after I would preach with a translator, and it was all complicated. See, now I'm making excuses. Um, But see, the the trouble with application is, for me, not only is it hard, uh, but the trouble with application is, ultimately, the whole Bible is about redemption in Christ. And so, we don't want to lose sight of the forest for the trees, Uh, Ultimately, it's about that, and if you understand what Christ uh, has done for you, it was anticipated in the the old, fulfilled in the new, you can rest, and your whole life, regardless of what you're doing in application, can at least be put into perspective. The other problem with application ends up being, um, people say they want application, and oftentimes the application is actually what people don't want. Uh, It's the tough stuff. Uh, See, it's one thing to learn about concepts and principles. It's one thing to learn these truths. And then it's another thing when somebody says, and now here's what you need to do, because God says you must do these things. And before you know it, the people who really wanted application really don't like it when I give application. This is one of those mornings. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is spicy, okay? Um, It's it's edgy. Uh, It is full of application, The Apostle Paul is going to try to help this church in Corinth, and he's been helping them by telling them who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, five and a half chapters of it. And then he applies it to them and says, do not unify with those who say they're believers and don't believe these things. And that messes up relationships, that messes up your life, that's hard. Okay, that's application. So we're going to do application today. Whether you want it or not, we're going to do application today. Okay, so I hope we've been applying all along because we've been learning about how great Christ is. But now we're going to see the lines drawn in the sand and it's going to affect their relationships and it might affect some of ours as well. So let's go ahead and read the text and then we'll look at the details. So beginning in verse 14, it says in 2 Corinthians 6, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 
7-1 is probably included. We're going to include it. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord, or in the fear of God, excuse me. So there's a series of commands. It's loaded with commands. I originally divided it up because there's three kind of sections, but you don't really need to to divide it up. There's one primary command and everything else is related. And the Apostle Paul draws upon the pictures from the Old Testament and from the Old Covenant to make his point. Okay? But the big idea comes in that first command. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's agrarian, think farming kind of culture, where you have two animals yoked together to accomplish the hard task of doing something. And he uses that picture, and he says, believer is not yoked to an unbeliever. And in our context, we will see and have seen, it's, it's about promoting spiritual things. It's about promoting Christian ministry. Um, it's not in the general common realm, um, but it's in that realm, in the spiritual realm. And so at the end, we'll talk about what it doesn't mean and talk about specific, specific kinds of applications. Um, this passage has been used, I think, abusively uh, in wrong ways sometimes. So we'll, we'll get into some of those issues. Remember in 1 Corinthians, I'm jumping ahead, but in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks about idols are nothing. He'll eat meat, so- meat sacrificed to idols. I mean, if that's the cheapest stuff, that's where he would send his wife. He's like, idols are, idols are nothing unless it is offensive to someone else or would violate your conscience. So he doesn't seem to have that in mind, that you can only shop at Christian grocery stores. Okay? He doesn't seem to have that in mind. Uh, what he seems to have in mind, or you can't use a, a, anything other than, you know, you name it, Christian this, Christian that, and it could never end. He's not saying, how about this, you should leave Corinth pagan Corinth, right? He's not saying, and so we're going to start a commune off on the Isle of Patmos and John will meet us there later. I mean, he's not doing that. They're still going to function in their culture and in their society, but they're not to be spiritually yoked, spiritually united with those they're not actually, wait for it, spiritually united with. Don't join yourself in spiritual ventures with those who don't believe in the biblical Christ is really what he's getting at. So, I already gave you my conclusion too. Patrick, you need more applications. <laughs> I can just hear it. <laughs> Do not be unequally, unequally yoked with unbelievers is the strong, striking command. And one reason it's so striking is because he says unbelievers. Because for the first five chapters, he's been dealing with the truth about Jesus over and against those who would have said they're believers. Remember, we looked ahead last week in chapter 11. In chapter 11, they call themselves apostles, seemingly apostles of Jesus Christ. They talk about a gospel, okay? They talk about the Spirit in chapter 11. And the apostle Paul says it's another gospel. It's a a different um, spirit. It's a different Christ. So I think it's so striking to think that he's not talking about atheists, per se. That's not who's in view in light of 2 Corinthians. He's talking about people who say, well, Paul says Jesus is the, the, the reconciler. Paul says Jesus is our perfect righteousness provided by faith. Paul says he's the fulfillment of the new covenant. Paul says all of these things, and we say otherwise. And Paul says, don't be une- unequally yoked, and he's pointing the finger in light of the whole book at those guys, the chapter 11 guys. So it's 
it's not, you know, the run-of-the-mill atheists he has in view here. It's people who would actually deny the truth about Christ. I've skipped chapter 11, verse 4. You can just make a note of it. We have far too much to do. Maybe we should also note he's not talking about immature Christians. He's not talking about where you have a disagreement over maybe other lesser issues. Um, What's been in view in the first five and a half chapters is who Jesus is, what he provides. Okay? The big ticket items. Don't be unequally yoked with them. Don't join them in Christian ministry because really, based upon what we're learning, they're not Christians. For the sake of time, maybe it might help. It helps me just to think of what he's covered in the first five chapters. Uh, All of it's been done by God for us, so it's by grace alone. Uh, It's all been accomplished by Christ. His work is done, so it's by faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, So I end up just thinking shorthand to kind of help me. He's talking about those kinds of issues. We've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the perfect work of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, based upon the authority ultimately of Scripture alone. So that's a good little shorthand for me thinking, okay, those are the ones he's dealing with. And I hope that helps you. Now some rationale that's pretty edgy. How about these rhetorical questions? If you like edgy, you might like this. If you don't like edgy, it's not so helpful. Verse 14 says, For what partnership, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The implied answers are, are, are negative, right? What accord has Christ with Belial, a title the Jews used for Satan? Or what portion or share does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Before we get to the next verse, this is where the Corinthians are saying, I think we're going to stop asking for application. Maybe it was good enough just to hear about how great Christ is. That, that, that through, through God's provision of Christ, He takes our sins away. He provides perfect righteousness. All, all who are in Christ are new creations. So awesome. And if we can just leave well enough alone, we can continue listening to these false apostles from chapter 11. And the apostle Paul says, no, you can't do it. If you're clear about who Jesus is, then you've got to be clear that those people actually don't believe in the same Jesus, even though they're naming Jesus. Years ago, I remember, I think Pastor Mike Holloway probably took the call and was interviewed. I think it was that. Um, Bad memory when it comes to certain things. But um, to, to ask why Omaha Bible Church wasn't participating in a certain evangelistic crusade in our city. Now, we like evangelism, we like the gospel, we like Christ, we like people to believe in Jesus, right, 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 all for it. But based upon who we would have to yoke ourselves with and unite with, we couldn't do it. So we're for the gospel, but we're not for a gospel that's not really the gospel, because actually it would be sinful for us to unite in promoting something that's not going to be clear regarding the gospel. And sure enough... You know, the opening ceremony, because we want to be ecumenical and inclusive, the opening prayer, as I recall, not a perfect memory, was given by someone who I know, because everyone within that group who takes their vows, vows themselves to be an altar Christus, another Christ. You can't do that. It doesn't even make sense. 
according to what they've written, Council of Trent, they officially damn the gospel and those who promote and believe justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's me. Can't do it. So you seem like the mean guy and you think, I don't want so much application. See, what you believe about things affects the way you do ministry. I said last week, we're, we give you, you've got to know things to understand, and it's actually going to affect the way you do things. Sometimes, maybe conveniently, I wish I didn't know so much. Because when I know what's taught about Jesus and someone opposes what's taught about Jesus, it affects what happens. One time, some church members started dialoguing with someone of a different religion, and so they thought it would be a good idea because they were going to convert them, and they thought it would be a great idea to then have me come over and so then I could get involved and... Don't do that. <laughs> anyway. So, and as we talked about different things and talked about the gospel and we're believing in different gods, not just different um, timings of the rapture or something, different gods, different Christ, different gospels. And so then we were going to part ways and they wanted, well, they said, well, before you go, let's make sure we pray together. And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm a person of prayer. I really like to pray, but based upon the fact that you've said this is who Jesus is, and I've said, this is who Jesus is, and this is how you get to heaven uh, in light of Second Corinthians, which I think you have in your Bible too. Uh, it would be a sin for me to do that. Joining in spiritual union to do something spiritual with someone who actually I don't share anything in common with spiritually. Pretty hard line, huh? If there's one God, and the only one who's ever been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven says there's only one. And he says he's the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by him. I'm believing that. I, 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 okay. Okay. So I'm not going to do Christian ministry with people who don't believe in that Christ. And that's being a hardliner. I'll get labeled as a fundamentalist. And I don't want to have that. Okay. I listen to rock and roll. <laughs> I go to movies. We had a newcomer's class today and there were playing cards in there. <laughs> I have friends who used to be members of churches and things have changed, I understand. But you had to sign something saying you wouldn't play cards if you were going to be a member of that church. And you all would know the church and the church would say anything other than that now. But we're not looking to be cultural fundamentalists here but we're looking to be pure with the gospel because if we have the gospel diluted, there will no longer be any power of salvation. That's all. How are you guys doing? You say, Patrick, we need more application. <laughs> he was right. He was right. Now, it gets... Really good here, okay? We're going we're gonna to pause from the edgy stuff for a moment. But look at verse 16 where it says, toward the end, for we are the temple of the living God. That's really good because if we are the temple of the living God, I'm all the more committed to saying, oh, purity is important, purity is super important, I'm all in. Because what he's doing is he's borrowing before this Old Testament descriptions for the people of God and he talks about the temple and what had to happen in the temple. It needed to be distinct, holy, separate. The priests were in charge of that. Okay? The temple is where, where God would uniquely meet with his people. Okay? In Jerusalem. 
And there's all kinds of purity laws involved. He's been using that language for the church, but he doesn't say, and we go to the temple. Because that's what the Jews did. They went to the temple, but now he's using new covenant terminology, the time we've all been waiting for, even the Old Testament anticipated it. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel. This is the new covenant realm. And not only would we not go to the temple anymore, we are the temple. That's radical. That's huge. Remember when Jesus was on earth, he said he was the temple. And now in John chapter 2, he's ascended and now with the power of the Spirit, we are the dwelling of God, the church. We're the temple. So not only have we gone from good through type and shadow, old covenant world where God would uniquely meet, we've now gone to, that's good, we've gone to the end game ultimate, we are the temple of God. And so if, if they should have kept things pure, all the more, if we're part of this, we, we would want things to be pure and to have a gospel be pure. And so it's exciting. But the, see, the theology matters. He's drawing upon that here. It's not lesser. It's fulfillment greater. We've seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, this internal emphasis, uh, which would be ch- chapter 3, verse 3, is new covenant talk. From Jeremiah 31, 33, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, he says, we're ministers of a new covenant. This is taken from Ezekiel 36, new heart, new spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you. All of this was not like, wow, where did this come from? No, it was anticipated, it was prophesied, it was promised, and now Paul's saying, this is it. So, so... Why would we want to be lackadaisical about the purity of the gospel, the truth about Christ? He's the fulfillment. We, we want to do anything but be lackadaisical. And by the way, when you read Israel's history and you see what a terrible job Israel did, let's learn from that. Let's learn from that. If we go on in verse 16... New covenant world. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's that's classic old covenant language. His unique people, the unique God, and he's uniquely with them and the Apostle Paul's using that language. But the Apostle Paul knows that it's even better now. Now we don't have conditions because of Christ, and Christ has fulfilled the obligations where Israel was unfaithful, we read it in the psalm today, and experienced the chastisement of God. Christ, the ultimate son, fulfills all of the obligations to the point where we, anyone who is in Christ is a new creature. Leviticus chapter 26. I'm, I'm frustrated because we're running out of time already. Leviticus 26, really good, really important, but it's going to end up being conditional. I will make my dwelling among you. It's what Paul is saying here. And my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. But if you keep reading in that passage, in the old covenant world, pre-Christ, but if you will not listen to me, and I will not do all, then I will not do all these, excuse me, Leviticus 26, 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if, you, if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, 
with wasting disease and fervor and consume the eyes and make the heart ache and you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues, pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Man. Makes me sweat. I will be your God. I'll be among you. But if you screw up, you're smoked. Pat's paraphrase. New covenant world. We've got the true and better Adam, the ultimate son. He's done all of the right things. We've learned about him for five and a half chapters. And now you don't have the threat. He's met the obligations. Again, we need more application. I want you to know how great and awesome it is to be a new covenant believer believing in Jesus as the fulfillment to the point where everyone who is in Christ, 517, is a new creation. And there's not a threat attached to it. It's because he fulfilled the law. He atoned for sins. It's what we've been learning about in the first five chapters. 521, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Ha! That's new covenant fulfillment. So we have all of these promised benefits given to us without the threats. And that is worth preserving. That's worth protecting. That's worth holding on to and saying, this can't get diluted. This can't get messed up. Our only hope is in Christ because we see the history of Israel again and again and again and again. And it doesn't end well. They need an ultimate David. They need an ultimate Savior, an ultimate Son. And if that's not worth preserving, arguing from the lesser to the greater, then nothing is worth preserving. 514, the love of Christ controls us. He loved us and gave himself up for us, so we want to do these things. Then if we continue on, it says in verse 17, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. From Isaiah 52. But Paul does what he does so masterfully. That's what Isaiah 52 said regarding Israel and Babylon. And now for the church, same exhortation, but we're finding ourselves in a different spot. If you looked at Isaiah 52, originally talking about Babylonian captivity of Israel, they were to return to the temple, and the priests were supposed to do this. The priests were supposed to um, touch no unclean thing. Okay, this is priest talk in Isaiah 52 if we took the time to look it up. So if you would, with me, track with me for another few moments. We'll wrap it up. In 17, where he says, what he says there is quoting Isaiah 52. If we looked up Isaiah 52, verse 11, this is what the priests are supposed to do. So let's get the people out of Babylon. Let's get them back to Israel. Let's get them to the temple. Touch no unclean thing. Protect the temple. Paul does what he does. We're not called to leave Babylon. They're not, he's not calling to leave Corinth. He's speaking spiritually. Not only that, they're not to go back to Jerusalem to the temple because he's just told them they are the what? They're the temple. And then we're supposed to resurrect the priests 
we're supposed to have a new priesthood? Uh, no, he's talking to the Corinthian believers because in Christ, priests are mediators, priests are those who have direct access to God. We have direct ac- access to God. That's why First Peter says we're a priesthood. Huh. It's amazing what he's doing here. It's really amazing what he's doing here. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5, if you needed to look that up. This is what we've been waiting for. This is the anticipation. This is a, today is the day of ultimate salvation, chapter 6, verse 2. They were supposed to be faithful in the old. They weren't faithful. Christ meets all of the obligations. So if they were supposed to be holy then, of course we're supposed to be holy now. We're supposed to be distinct now. Isn't it interesting that he says, touch no unclean thing? What did Jesus say about unclean things and food? He says he makes all things clean. So we'll end on this and we'll pick it up again next week. Unclean, ceremonially unclean in the Old Testament, so don't touch it. It'll defile you. Because of Christ and what He's accomplished, because of His perfect sacrifice, because of His perfect obedience, He says, when He comes on the scene, I make all things clean. So if in the old we would want to be serious-minded if we were priests, let's make sure we don't touch anything clean. And let's be separate. Let's be distinct. Let's not be idolatrous with our our pagan neighbors. All the more so when we come to the new, the one who makes all things clean. I would want to protect the truth about him. The one who makes all things clean, that's the one. He's the one. And if somebody says, well, yeah, but you have to have these food laws. No, the one who makes all things clean. Yeah, but you have to do these extra things because God told me because we're super duper apostles, chapter 11. No, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm listening to the one who is Christ the Lord. He's the one who's made all things clean. But we're still in the same spirit, the same perspective, protecting, keeping pure, genuine, the one we actually need because actually everybody ended up committing sin and defiling themselves even though the law said keep all things clean. Now we're going to trust in the one who has made all things clean. Well, I bit off more than I could chew today is what I did. I thought we were going to get done and talk about application and all those sorts of things. We're not going to get to it today. We'll have to finish it up tomorrow. But keep in mind... (laughs) See? Next Sunday. Keep in mind, we are called to be different. But it's a misstep that Christians have commonly made out of sincerity. They wanted to be different in a way. Second Corinthians isn't calling them to be different. And then they've not known the gospel well enough. And so they've not been different and stood up for the purity of the gospel. So let's not stand up for things we don't have to stand up for. And let's stand up for things we do need to stand up for. Okay? Eternal life is tied to faith in Christ because He and He alone is the one who lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, was raised from the dead. It's history. He talked about it. He interpreted it Himself with His own words. And we would want to do everything we possibly can as individuals and as a church to keep that what it is. We're obligated to do that. 
for our sake and for the next generation's sake. Let's pray. We'll even pray for the meal. We might have some directions for you when we're done, but let's pray now. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, weakness. Thank you for struggles, but thank you for the fact that ultimately Jesus Christ is the Lord and we can trust in him. We're grateful for that. We're grateful for the uh, fact that this book has helped us, allow it to continue helping us. Uh, Lord, give us a good time today at our picnic. May it be sweet fellowship where we can enjoy each other's company. Thank you for providing for all of our needs. Please bless our food and our conversation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.